this is Naomi Gibbs, and I'm talking today with Sarah Perry, the author of After the Eclipse, which Houghton Mifflin Harcourt will publish on September 26, 2017. Um, Sarah, thanks for coming in, and could you just start by telling us a little bit about your book? Sure. Um, my book is about my mother, Crystal Perry, who was murdered in 1994 when I was 12. Um, we lived in a small town in Maine. So it's also about our life before the murder and our relationship and um, our very close mother-daughter bond and her challenges as a single mother in a small town. Um, and sort of behind and through all of this is um, I'm really wanting to engage with the question of the prevalence of violence against women in the U.S. and worldwide now. Great. Um... You say in the book that you sort of the earliest seeds of your writing process began years ago, and for various reasons you were stalled by that. Uh, what, was there a point when you actually committed to writing it, and how long have you actively been writing it? Yeah, um, I would say some of those fits and starts that I referred to were in my mid early twenties, um, and I would start, but I would feel really anxious and feel like I wasn't up to the task. Um, that I couldn't really do the story justice. And, you know, I was isolated. I didn't know very many other writers, so it became clear to me that I had to put myself into grad school where I would have a more supportive community and a lot more guidance. So um, I started the MFA at Columbia in 2010, um, and that's when I really started actively writing. Although I had done myself some favors. I had taken some notes um, during the trial, just just in case I ever got around to it. So I was pretty thankful to, like, 2006 me um, <laughs> that she had done that and somehow saved them somewhere where I could actually find them. So I had some material to go on, but um, I started it in earnest in the fall of 2010. So in all, it took six years. Um, and since I'm 35, I calculated that it took, has taken me 20% of my life to tell the story of my life. <laughs> And you have so much more ahead of you, which is nice. One hopes. Yeah, yeah one hopes. <laughs> um, so, I mean, so I'm your editor. As your editor, I like I came into this process after you'd been working on the book yourself for a while. And, you know, I mean, you workshopped it at Columbia. You talked to your agent about it in, you know, various ways. But this was, I mean, I believe this was the first time you'd worked so closely with one person, one-on-one, -on -one, for an extended period of time. Did that... I mean, did that change the process of writing it for you at all? Um, I think it did to some degree. I mean, I just, I felt, I had had a single contact, um, a friend who I got very close to at Columbia, Marin Sardi, who was also working on a memoir, so we would trade chapters and have um, Skype edit sessions once a week, actually, because um, we live far away from each other. So I called her my book wife. Um, but I was very fortunate that um, just as her life was getting really busy <clears throat> and we were unable to do that, you came on board. And then there was a person whose literal job it was to help me with this thing, um, which was completely amazing, um, but hard to get used to. I think all of my communication with you at first was really awkwardly formal because um, <laughs> I didn't really understand what this relationship was. But then um, the book being so full of intimate detail from my life, um, that got ridiculous really soon. So, um, you know, suddenly I had this other person in my head too um, and we would have all these conversations in the comments, in the comments feature in Word which you probably have PTSD about because I think I had 500 comments at some point. <laughs> um, but that was 
uh, really great to know that there was somebody else looking at it on that level. Um, and I think, especially it being my first book, um, hopefully I will um, work on this muscle more, but as far as um, macro level imagining of the book, um, I think that's where you were most helpful because you really had that skill. Um, and it was really important to me to structure the book um, in a really conscious way because I didn't want it to read like a standard crime, like a true crime narrative. Um, but since it, you know, it was real life and it included a crime and there was that arc um, that was sort of like a gravitational pull on what I was doing. But I really didn't want it to have that whodunit feel. So I had to come up with some other structure than just laying it out chronologically. Um, and I think you were really instrumental in helping me find that structure. So that was really amazing. Um, well, I mean, I think the book, the finished product is pretty amazing. So um, all of the work that you've put into it for years has definitely paid off. Um, you know, one thing that I really love about the book is that you know, it is a personal story, it's a memoir, but you, I mean, I know you've done a tremendous amount of investigative journalism work writing it. Um, I just, you know, I think you're able to look at something really intimately and up close that happened to you in your real life, but then also pull back and talk about people in the town and, and sort of the general goings on that you weren't privy to at the time. Um, can you talk a little bit about why you felt it was important to present the story that way, and also, I mean, I think just a little about how you came to the information that you were able to add to the book. Yeah, um, well, I will say I had a very early, early version of the book, which was sort of a thesis project in undergrad, and it was this, this wild um, genre straddling David Shieldsy, John Degata thing, um, because I was thinking a lot about um, the unreliability of memory and, and language theory and all of these things. Um, and then when I really started writing the book, all that very quickly fell away because it was clear that like what I needed here was capital T truth, you know, for aesthetic reasons, for ethical reasons, and personally, you know, I really wanted to get a handle on exactly what had happened. And, you know, having been so young when the crime happened and when I lost mom, you know, my, um, sphere of what I knew was necessarily limited. Um, so it was really empowering actually for me to go back and look at a lot of things that I either hadn't been privy to or that I hadn't been able to think about in a long time because, you know, because they were upsetting or disturbing or for whatever reason. Um, it's, it's also strange um, when a crime happens in your life and it's covered by the media and, you know, there are all these investigators. You, there's this whole cadre of people who know more about your life, it feels, than you do. Um, so it was important for me to sort of um, get control of all that and gather all of that information. So, and I think really the very beginning of that process was traveling up to Maine um, and sitting with the records um, at the Maine State Police office. Um, and I was just really fortunate that they were um, really receptive to that and um, really you know, we're very open about that. And I think, I mean, part of that is the benefit of coming from a very depopulated state, you know? They don't have a whole lot of people bothering them for that sort of task. Well, and I mean, the investigation itself had been 12 years long and they had cartons and cartons of information for you to work from, which right. 
not it's not always the case. I mean, right. they, you yeah. investigated pretty deeply. Right, yeah, and they really, you know, they kept it open. It was at no point officially a cold case. It was always open, it was always active. They were always looking for leads, so, you know, they had cast a really wide net, so they had talked to a lot of people in town, you know, in different states, all over the place. So I had, I was fortunate to have all of this, um, I had a lot more context, I think, than I would have if the investigation had been more straightforward. Mm -hmm. um, and I had a lot of personal stories from other people's lives, um, and I could sort of see the reverberations of this crime sort of outside of myself, too, and see how it had affected other people and you know, maybe some of the, the forces around what happened. Um, so there was a lot of rich material there. But it was strange. I mean, personally, it was strange because I had to go into this journalistic headspace and I would do these things and I would um, sometimes not be like personally careful enough with myself and I would do too much in a day and then the day would end and I would sort of pop out of that intellectual mode and um, kind of have to recover from that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I can only imagine. It's, I mean, it, it was a tremendous amount of work on something that I would say self-care is like sort of an understatement. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. Thinking about what you would, what you were able to accomplish. Um, so I know this is a really sticky word for you, but um, <laughs> but I'm ready. So yeah. Okay. So I mean, and this is something we talked a lot about in the actual writing of the book. That I mean, the story in the book is not one that has tidy closure for a lot of reasons, but the experience of writing it does sort of have a moment of closure because you are done. And I am done. Yeah, and it's about to go out into the world. Um, what, I mean, what do you hope that readers will take away from it? It's such a big question. Um, I was so ready to push back against that, content, that, um, that concept of closure, but you already did it for me, so. I just knew where you were headed. I know. <laughs> know everything about me um you know then I think personally and as a writer as a reader I would say um anybody telling their story in an authentic manner can be useful to any other human and you can't predict the ways in which it's going to be personally useful um you know, I happen to have a dramatic personal history, so I have a lot to work with, but that doesn't mean that somebody who didn't have such a publicly um, sensational thing happen to them doesn't have a useful human story to tell. So I think, um, you know, there are a lot of things that literature does that I hope happen here, you know, mm -hmm. that people um, feel a sense of connection and think about their own challenges in, in different ways. Um, and I think, you know, a lot of people um, maybe know me before they know that, know any of this history of mine or know that I've written about it. Um, and I often um, am told that people are shocked, you know, because I'm, I'm pretty um, together, I yeah, guess. Yeah, that's actually true of me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, my life is pretty stable. I've had a certain amount of um, success in life, and people can't imagine that something so horrible happened to me. Um, and I would like to just, you know, represent that. Like, there are a lot of us out there who have had really dramatic things happen to us who have gone on, and 
um, it feels a little Pollyanna to say, but I would like the readers to understand that they're stronger than they think they are. You know, like you maybe have not had your hugest challenge in your life yet. Um, and I think people are better prepared if they do not preemptively underestimate themselves, you know, because things happen. Things happen to people's children, you know, um, you lose people in your life, natural disasters happen, you never know. And I think it's just important to see that not everybody who's had something bad happen to them is in the gutter, you know. Mm -hmm. It's a very long way of saying that, but um, just that people, you know, can sort of vicariously have this experience and then and then maybe feel some of the personal strength that they might bring to a future challenge. Um, on a broader level, um, I really, you know, it was really important to me not only to focus on the murder and, you know, other violent or aggressive things that um, <clears throat> may have happened around this story, but just sort of thinking about everyday sexism and misogyny and that there are a lot of um, situations um, where, you know, um, society discounts women's power and silences women and controls our bodies and I really think that um, it's very dangerous to write all those things off because they are related. You know, it's a continuum of thinking that you have the right to have power over somebody else and I really do think that there is a direct line between, you know, interrupting your female colleague in a meeting um, and thinking you have some sort of control over her body or the power to end her life, you know. People do these violent things and we have to think like, well, where did they get this idea that they were entitled to even put their hands on somebody? Um, so I think I thought a lot about, you know, what sort of power structures contributed to this crime happening. So I did want to get into that too. Yeah, which I think you do really powerfully in the book. Thank you. Um, well, that, well, that's my last question. Um, thank you again for coming in. Thank and, you. Thanks um, for speaking with me. Yeah, of course. And after the eclipse, headed, headed out into the world in September. So here's to that.